Hey everybody, welcome to Artist Soapbox. Artist Soapbox is a podcast featuring triangle area artists talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am your host, Tamara Kassane. In this episode, I'm speaking with Amy Sawyers-Williams. Amy is a theater artist and arts educator based in Raleigh. She earned her master's in applied theater from the City University of New York, where she became skilled in devising interactive theater rooted in a desire for social justice. Amy founded Seesaw Projects in 2017 with an aim to create applied theater projects in North Carolina and is currently running theater-based workshops at the Wake Correctional Center. Amy can also be found working as a teaching artist at her day job with Arts NC State and performing with her improv team, Cheryl. In this episode, Amy talks about Seesaw Project's residencies in the Wake Correctional Center, Applied Theater and Improv, in particular Improv in the Time of COVID-19, and Flourish, an online arts and mental wellness initiative through Arts NC State, which is a compilation of online resources across the arts. See the link in the show notes. And there are two bonuses at the very end of this episode. The first is essentially an outtake from my conversation with Amy when my four-year-old decided to become a participant. I deleted that from the final version of our conversation because it totally interrupted the flow, but I included it at the end so that you can get a sense of the behind the scenes reality here and so you can hear his cute little voice. The second bonus is a storytelling exercise that Amy was so generous to send me in case you are looking for a writing exercise that you can do at home. I'll read it at the end and also post the written instructions in the show notes. Thanks, and enjoy this episode with Amy Sawyers-Williams. Hi, Amy. Thank you so much for making time to have this conversation today. Hi, Tamara. Thank you for doing this podcast right now. It's awesome. Last time we had you on the podcast, it was December 2017. Today, it's the beginning of April in 2020, so it feels different in lots of different ways. I wonder if you'd like to start with just giving us an update on what you and Seesaw have been up to in these intervening years. Yeah, absolutely. First of all, it seems like the years it's been, but also it seems like no time at all since I was recording with you. So it's hard to believe that was 2017. Um, since then, Seesaw Projects the you know has been really focusing on doing work in the prison system. And that kind of came about because I met an awesome artist who had relocated from New York to Raleigh. And her name is April Storm Perry. Hey, April. And she and I connected through mutual friends in the CUNY Applied Theater program where I went to school. And um, anyway, April came down here and she had lots of experience facilitating theater in prisons like Rikers Island and Sing Sing. And she was looking for opportunities to do that kind of work down here. And I had also heard that there wasn't uh, much artistic programming happen happening in the local pr- prisons. And I'll correct that. I should say not a lot of performance artistic programming happening. So 
she and I partnered up and we created some curriculum. We started with um, some improv-based curriculum and made a connection, which was really difficult to make. It took months, but we made a connection with someone at the um, Weight Correctional Center, which is a minimum security prison here in based in Raleigh. And they were interested in us kind of doing a pilot residency with them. And that was last spring. Uh, last, like actually last early summer in 2019. It took about a year to plan. But yeah, we started our, our first residency and it was about seven weeks total. We just absolutely loved working there. We got fantastic feedback from our participants. And then we were lucky enough to receive a Man Bites Dog grant. I believe that was sometime in the fall. Um, but we were so grateful to receive a grant to continue the work. And so we went back in for a second residency in 2020. And that was focusing not only on improv, but we added storytelling with a with an intent to do a little bit of devising work, kind of combining improv and storytelling with devising. We nearly finished that residency and then COVID happened. And so Mm -hmm. the participants were supposed to perform um, and we had to postpone that. So that's where I'm at now. And, and also just excited that Seesaw Projects was able to, you know, engage in this project and with, with this community. And so, so it's on hold right now, but we're going to pick it back up once this once this mess dissolves somehow. Right. How many sessions did you have during each residency? So at first, I I was interested in kind of modeling this off like a level one improv class and having six sessions. Um, that's usually the case, you know, one, you meet once a week for a couple hours. And the first session, we decided we needed to come back for a seventh session to do kind of a review and an assessment. And so we had the guys fill out assessment forms, which was really, really valuable. I can talk a little bit about that in a bit. But then the um, second residency, we decided we we wanted more time. We had heard their feedback. And so for this particular one, I think it'll be a total of, of nine weeks. And how many participants were in each group? Yeah, the first group we had 10 participants and we um this this prison also offers work release. So we found that one challenge among many challenges of working in a prison system is that sometimes participants will gain work release and so they can't attend the sessions anymore. So it has fluctuated from 10 to 9 in the first session and then in the second session we had seven and then also one had work release. So then it became six. So there are a lot of questions that I have for you about this programming, but, and this might be a big one to start with, but what value do you think this type of artistic programming, specifically improv and storytelling has for participants within the prison system? Yeah, it's a great question. Something I've been thinking a lot about and have some data to support as well. So I think like number one, and this is why I do this work, I think like at the core is it offers an opportunity for these guys to play and to get in touch with this like fun, playful, 
inner child that so many of us, I almost want to say all of us, but so many of us have, you know, we all learn how to engage in play when we're young. And as you know, you know, that's kind of conditioned out of us. And that's not only for people who are locked up, that's for so many adults in the world <laughs> to get back mm-hmm. in the kind of play that theater and improv can unlock. So with 100% of the participants, we found that their mood was improved after taking our sessions. We learned that in the survey. And, you know, I think before I started this work, I don't know, I wouldn't have been so confident about that, especially because some of the participants would come in and they would be in bad moods. You know, they had some serious stuff going on, deaths in the family or different types of, you name it. And I would start this session and I would just think like, oh, man, should I should I push them to participate? Should I let them sit out? And ultimately, they're adults. You know, April and I tried to offer some freedom. But what we saw was once they started playing improv games, once they just started saying yes, um, mm-hmm. for improv principle saying yes, and they would end the session with smiles on their faces, and they, they'd say as much. So I think that was kind of the number one positive takeaway that I that I saw. But also beyond that, we talked to them a lot about how we could u- how they felt they could use improv theater and storytelling skills um, outside of the sessions. And so a lot of them talked about using it for conflict resolution within the prison on the yard. And that's something I, I didn't necessarily realize was going to be so important. And it was basically this kind of recipe of like listening and being able to say yes, the idea of, of saying yes to someone without shutting down and saying no right away and how that can be translatable. And then finally, we made sure to give each participant a certificate. After we finished our first residency, we encouraged them to put these classes on their resumes if they if getting out is an option for them. And then hopefully in the future, if we can develop the program enough, we'd love to be able to offer classes on the outside for any of the inmates who who are released um, so that they can have something to anchor them when they come back to the outside world. Why did you, and I, I know you can't speak completely for April, but in her, in her stead, why did you all focus on this demographic? It's a great question. And one of the, one of our participants in the past session, like, first question he asked. He was like, why do y'all want to be in here doing theater with a bunch of inmates? I think number one, April and I have, we have training in this kind of work. And so you can probably trace it back. I can't speak for April and I'd love to connect you and maybe you can get her on the podcast sometime to to talk about it. But she, she and I were both, you know, trained, um, in traditional theater and traditional acting. And each of us found applied theater or, you know, theater for social change in our own ways. I think she stumbled upon it in New York and started working with a a group called Drama Club. And for me, it was, I found out about the CUNY Masters in Applied Theater program. And from there, just learning about the possibilities, the way we could use theater um, with folks who are struggling with major issues 
just learning about how theater can help, you know, serve as a problem solving model, unlock different possibilities in one's life. You know, so we both found that as a passion, found training in it. And because of that, I think are just acutely aware of the populations who don't get to experience theater who might be interested. And in my philosophy, and this comes from um, my day job is at Arts NC State, and their mantra is, the arts are for everyone. And I really feel that I want to live that as well. And so I do believe that they're for everyone. And so folks who tend to be more invisible to society, you know, do not experience the performing arts like we get to on on the outside. That's all the reason that we we wanted to do this work. We were like teed up to do it. And the kind of the like icing on the cake was learning that at this particular facility they only had religious and educational programs and then programs like AA and NA. But at this particular place they have <clears throat> at Wake Corrections, to my knowledge, they didn't have any like literature or or art programs. So knowing that we could provide some performance art, that was really that was exciting. And also it was important that the participants were self-selecting, so we weren't forcing it on anyone. They all decided to sign up. Amy, when you and April were planning for these improv sessions, how did you structure the curriculum? Did you did you really treat it like an intro to improv and basically go through lesson planning in, in the way that you would present this to anyone who signed up for a class? April and I both have experience in training in improv. And so the foundation for the curriculum was at first, the first residency was like improv 101, especially when you're teaching it to an adult class, you know, making sure people um, can be safe if they need to, they can sit out if they want to. But we really modeled it, you know, building off of the principles of yes and. We used improv games that we're both very familiar with. I would say that some games and things come up that, you know, we might reassess. For example, in the storytelling session, we were trying to add in a a little bit more variety in what we were doing. So we wanted to play um, two truths and a lie to kind of develop the storytelling muscle. But then we learned, you know, through that, that was interesting because some of the guys were like, oh, um, you really are showcasing our our ability to lie. And then there were some things that were coming up that were, you know, really personal. So we are learning. I I feel in some ways that this is an experiment. And I don't mean that in the way of, oh, we're experimenting on these subjects. But what I mean is that Seesaw Projects is still a very young company. And this is the first, this is the first time that we're writing this curriculum. You know, we're not using it from other folks. We are seeing what works and what doesn't. And in my favorite, the idea of praxis is the idea of thinking about it, taking action, reflecting on that action, and then going out there again with what you learned. Um, So there's a lot of that going on. You mentioned the assessments at the end of the residency and some of the learning that you uh, accrued from that. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about kind of what you learned as a result from the first residency that then you put into place in the second one. And I realize you didn't get to finish it, but maybe what you might apply in the third residency when that happens. Well, after the first residency, 
we heard loud and clear that the guys wanted more. They wanted longer sessions because we only went in there for one hour the first time around. And we were following the lead from our staff partners there. And once we gained the trust of of the staff, we were able to negotiate for an hour and a half sessions for our second residency. We play in the dining hall and we're still hoping we can, there's like a very coveted classroom space that we would love to get into for the third residency, which would be the most private and quiet because, you know, one of the the downsides is that um, there are like announcements. It's very, it feels very much like a school. There are announcements that interrupt you all the time. And in the dining hall, people are getting ready for dinner. And um, we have a lot of kind of an ad hoc audience that comes in as well. So that's all, those are all things we're hoping to keep improving for the third residency. But what we learned that we're trying to beyond the logistics of they wanted longer is I'm finding that the participants are also very interested in traditional theater. They're very interested in, in acting, learning how to act, um, working off of scripts. They said after the first round that they were interested in storytelling. And so that is why we incorporated improv and storytelling into the second residency. And so for the third one, I am guessing that and we haven't done this yet, but based on the feedback, I'm guessing that they're going to be interested in in acting and writing. And so mm-hmm. I think April and I are going to take some time and come away from this and kind of explore what the next module could look like. And if other folks who are, you know, experts in creative writing and also, you know, maybe acting, maybe Shakespearean acting might want to come on board and teach some of these sessions. So Seesaw is, it seems like we are providing just a ge- like general theater kind of theater school training. And it in, in my dream world, what I would love to work towards is a fully devised production that we could do at the, at the prison. And I do think that would take um, at least another solid year, if not more, to be able to do. Right. That sounds really exciting if, if that could happen. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I hope so. I want to pivot just slightly because what I'm hearing you talk about is the way in which the participants at Wake Correctional Center used some of the lessons from your improv sessions and applied it in their daily lives. And I know that you are interested in applied theater, but also in applied improv. So could you talk a little bit about your thinking around that and how those thoughts are affecting the work that you're making? Yeah, I absolutely. And in the training that I received in applied theater, a lot of the training had a basis in improv. You know, it was really helpful to know how to improv, how to say yes to ideas in order to then build, for example, um, a scene of like a theater of, of the oppressed play in which the, you know, the protagonist is able to go back and, and replay the action based on audience suggestion. Anyway, improv is great for all of that. And what I've been finding though, is that my regular improv training, you know, the training I got at Comedy Works and and now the work I'm doing with the team that's associated with Meddlesome, I just, I find that that is so needed by different populations who don't have access to sign up for normal improv classes. So 
I was doing, I've been doing improv for the past few years with folks that would not consider themselves performers and that have not necessarily even signed up to do improv. And um, pretty much across the board, I've been finding that it's just a super accessible performance form that's, it's ready to go. You can take it, you can take it anywhere, you can do it anywhere, including online, which I'm learning now through improv rehearsals that are happening on Zoom. You know, the foundational principles of it, the listening, saying yes, and, you know, sharpening your communication skills, opening up your creativity, playing, like those are all just incredibly vital, vital skills to have. So yeah, so I've been, I've been thinking more about, you know, my work as an applied theater artist, but also how much of that is actually applied improv. And it's pretty cool. And it it could also just be improv, you know, but I think the word applied comes in when, when you are, you know, using it like you would, um, somebody's sick and you're applying a balm to something. Um, that's where the applied improv part comes in when you're working with folks who they're, you know, they're struggling and they're going through something. And and in this case, we think improv specifically is, is going to help. Now seems like mm-hmm. a prime opportunity for some improv <laughs> in our lives either as solo practitioners or in a group. So I guess one way to start to talk about this is how you are managing to do your online improv rehearsals, but then also kind of taking a wider view and thinking about how we might apply some of the improvisational techniques just as we try to navigate really what the pandemic throws at us every day, which is always something new. Yes. Yes. That question gets me excited for the possibilities of what Seesaw projects might be able to to do during the pandemic. You know, right now I'm thinking of two two things. One is that my heart is breaking that that we cannot somehow get to our participants at Wake Correctional. No technology, no phones are allowed, screens are not allowed. So there's no way that we can get in there to help even offer, you know, the kind of Zoom improv I'm able to do with with my team right now. And I I think I mentioned this to you on an email, but I'm on a new all-female improv team. Just going to plug it here. Our name is Cheryl, and we're really excited to perform once the pandemic is over. So there's that. I'm sad about the participants in that way. But um, I had a giant Zoom meeting with my um, applied theater peers and alumni of our program the other night, we were talking about ways that we could do applied theater and for me an improv online. And having done an improv rehearsal online, seeing it can be done, I do think it's a fantastic opportunity to just invite people to come play, you know, on Zoom. Um, and so that is something I'm I'm thinking about a lot right now. I'm I'm sure that the folks over at Meddlesome I know they're doing stuff. They're always, they're movers and shakers. So I know they're putting, I think, shows online. But I also, saying all that, do want to acknowledge this kind of Zoom fatigue that we are all, a lot of us are experiencing. And also this idea that like, we are now encountered with a lot of online arts experiences and classes and ways to get involved. So I don't know the answer to this yet, but I'm trying to figure out how 
to, in my own practice, not overwhelm myself and say yes to so many things. And at the other spectrum, there's just resting and doing nothing and how to like meet somewhere in the middle. And so um, anyway, that's, I don't know if that answers your question, but I'm thinking a lot about how to offer some the, um, some improv at this time during the pandemic, but also to be conscious of and acknowledge that there are a lot of opportunities out there right now. I'm not an improviser. I've I've done very little of it, so I'm ignorant about a lot of sort of the, the specifics. But as a playwright, I think you know I try to make choices that will serve the story and. When I have done improv, the saying yes is also a, making a choice to serve the story. And because you can't say yes to every single thing that you're, as you just mentioned, like we can't do all the things. We can't bring all the things into our lives and into our stories and mm-hmm. into our day to day. So there is a sort of discrimination of choice that has to happen. But I like the idea of being open to the possibility of saying yes, and then really discriminating about what we can give a 100% commitment to on a daily basis. Yeah, I like that idea too. I like this idea that it's also like, how are you saying yes to like your own story right now? And like, maybe that's your own pandemic story, my story, your story, everyone's. It's going to look really different. And if you're sick right now, you need to say yes to chicken soup and isolation and, you know, vapor. And, you know, if you're like me, my my brain is buzzing in a million different directions. So if I chronically say yes, I just become so overloaded. So I have to ask myself right now, okay, what's what's my story right now? Like what what story do I want to advance using your using your words? And for me, it's got to be a balance between being helpful to to our community, using my skill set to be helpful and helping my own creative engine, um, but also finding space for for just rest, capital R rest. <laughs> I know that I find a lot of resistance to this idea of rest. So that's something that I have to be more available to do. Doing, but I think it's also, I mean, one of the things that I love about improv and one of the reasons I am not very good at it is because I like a certain amount of control and I like to wrestle a story in the direction that I want it to go in. And so I think, you know, for me, an important practice based on improv is just being able to kind of release a little bit of that need for control and work with what is being, with what is, I guess I'll, I'll just say it that way working with what is rather than what I want to be, want it to be. And that is, that's a hard practice for me on stage and in life. Oh, absolutely. I think as you were saying that, what it made me think of is kind of like maybe improv is like, in some ways, like the meditation of theater, you know, theater forms in a way, because it is so based in the present moment. And I know that the reason that I like adding improv to my theater practice is because it forces me to be in the present moment. It forces me to listen, even though I'm not, I'm also not very good at it. If someone says like a name in a scene, they're like, I'm Dave. 
I'm like, I guarantee you in <laughs> one minute, I'm going to be like, shit, what did they say their name was? Yes. Um, it doesn't matter how, you know, it's just so difficult. But I think that um, it, for me, at least improv has, has been um, not, it's never like the only thing that I do because I also like to be in a more structured environment of, you know, being in a play or being a part of like a, you know, a script development, you know, an audio drama. Um, so I think that they can, all those things can coexist. But if people want to tap into some play and to some present awareness, improv is great for that. How are your Zoom call meetings working? Because are you just using your faces and not your bodies? Yes, that's right. So we only had one. We had one online rehearsal two weeks ago, and we have our second one tomorrow. And it looks just like your typical Zoom meeting would look. But we do utilize the like camera perspective a little bit in fun ways. I think at first it was very awkward. It's like, oh my God, what are we doing? I don't want to do this. But by the end, we were finding different ways. And um, you can certainly get up and move around if you want to. It may, just made me think that um, I've been hearing all of these like theater teachers and facilitators who are teaching and who are having their students like create pieces of theater through Zoom. So I think we're we're really getting to a place where we're finding that we can be really creative with it and we're kind of experimenting and seeing what's what what works. But yeah, the the hard part is um in improv when people on the side, the teammates on the sidelines think a scene, you know, should be over, they edit it. They run across the stage and edit it. Um you can't do that in <laughs> in Zoom. So we're trying to experiment with like different ways we can signal that we're editing and walking away. So it's silly and fun and messy. <laughs> yeah. And building a new vocabulary, which I think feels really awkward because I mean, right now I'm talking to a microphone and I'm by myself in this room. And then when I'm on a Zoom meeting, I'm talking to like faces on my computer. It feels so weird. <laughs> it is so it is so weird and I'll I also just want to add that I feel this irony though because truly I feel more connected to people like my family, friends that I haven't seen in a while than I have in years because people have time and so I'm getting these invites like hey, let's do a Zoom happy hour. I'm thinking like this would never happen in, you know, pre-pandemic. Um, because you all would be too busy or we couldn't all get together. So I've, I've been finding that really interesting. I feel really connected to my people right now. And that also feels, yeah, like very ironic. I'm glad to hear that. That's, that's wonderful. Trying to find the good. <laughs> that's right. Is there anything that we haven't covered? We've ranged around, but is there anything that you would like to talk about before we wrap up? Um, the only other thing I just wanted your listeners to hear is that also in this pandemic climate with my work at Arts NC State, I wanted people to know that we were able to pivot and instead of the, we were going to have an arts and wellness festival. So now it's an arts and wellness online initiative. And part of that is to engage some NC State students in some art making. But another part of that is we've generated a list of now over a hundred online arts experiences that are categorized. And we have some of those highlighted on the website. But if anyone is interested in, in a comprehensive list, and again, I'm aware that we have 
all these opportunities and emails and things coming at us. But, you know, if you want to just check out what's out there in theater or music or whatever, um, you can go to go.ncsu.edu slash flourish, and you can find that list there. So that's just another something that's been, yeah, a nice, a, a creative way that we were able to pivot that, that I hope people will find useful teachers and things like that. Thank you for compiling those resources because I'm sure that took a lot of time and it is nice to have one place where they are all because there is so much coming, as you mentioned. I mean, it's wonderful that people are doing so many things, but I just can't keep track of it all. And so it's nice to be able to go to one spot and see a pretty comprehensive list. So thank you for pulling that together. And I'll put that link in the show notes for people. Absolutely. And if people are interested, if people want to feature their work that they're showing online right now, we are so happy to add that. So um, also, if we could put my email in the show notes as well, acsawyer at ncsu.edu, you can send me any of your online arts experiences and we'll put them up there. Yeah. And we'll try not to bombard people. It's more of a self-selecting. You can come and check it out. Thank you, Amy, so much for being available in all sorts of ways this morning. (laughs) I I always love to talk to you, and it's been a wonderful way to spend my Saturday morning. Well, you are so welcome. And again, thank you for inviting me and for um, doing this podcast. I feel really grateful to be listening to other artists and creatives during this time of COVID and just to hear how different ways of coping and um, it's really special. So thank you. Amy, would you like to say hello to my child who is yeah. in the room? Okay, hello. hold on one second. Hold on one second. Okay. Come by the microphone and say hi. Say hi, Miss Amy. Hi, Miss Amy. Hello, who am I talking to? Say it's Clark. Coke. Hi, Clark. How are you? No. Okay, Clark, can you say bye bye? Bye-bye. All right. Go downstairs with Dad. Thank you. Bye, Clark. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, my God. He's, his voice is so cute. <laughs> Thank you for indulging that. He keeps coming in and out of the room. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm, like, gesturing wildly. I'm, like, go away. Go away. <laughs> no, this is, the, this is the reality so many of us are living with. My little dog is going to come bounding in at some point. <laughs> Yes. Oh my God. All right. We're just going to, I'm so sorry. Today is like particularly chaotic. Usually it's not quite so chaotic, but that's um, okay. I think you should keep this in. This is great. This is real. (laughs) Okay. All right. This is a storytelling activity while homebound. And as I mentioned, I'm going to read this and then I will post it in the show notes in case you'd like written instructions. Thank you so much, Amy Sawyers-Williams, for sending this. The title of this activity is A Living Museum. You can do this solo or with as many people as you have at home. Supply is needed. Objects of your choosing and something to write with. A phone to record if you wish. Instructions. Choose as many objects that have personal value to you as you like. For example, this could be a journal, favorite perfume or cologne, pillow, stuffed animal, favorite bowl, etc. Place each item around the house, museum style, so it is on display. Then get out a writing utensil and paper. 
Take 10 minutes to write the life story of this object using the first person. In theater, this would also be called a soliloquy. For example, if I'm using the perfume, the beginning of my story might be, I remember the day Amy pulled me off the shelf. She spritzed me and seemed really happy with how I smelled. When I came home with her, I met my new shelf mates, a lotion bottle, who I now call Sal, and etc., etc. Think about what kind of character your object is and what kind of voice they have. Do they have a French accent, like the perfume might? Are they very stressed or grumpy or bubbly? Let the story of the object inform what kind of character they are. If you are home by yourself, you can record yourself performing or speaking your object story. Remember to include your object's character trait or accent if you have one. You can record this story on Instagram and use the hashtag SeesawStoryProject. Thanks so much. Happy writing. Thanks so much for listening. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. For more information, see our website, artistsoapbox.org.